Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. In just over a week, our nation is going to celebrate Memorial Day. We understand the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Memorial Day is a day that we set aside in order to honor the fallen soldiers in order to honor those that have sacrificed their life for our freedom, Veterans Day, in order to honor those that are still living, uh, that served in our military. But there's nothing more compelling than the stories we hear of great sacrifice that our men and women experience so that we can live in freedom. And what makes those stories even more compelling is when we come across the letters that were written by fallen men and women to their loved ones. In March of 2002, coalition forces began to gear up for Operation Anaconda, which was a major assault on the Taliban and al-Qaeda strongholds in the mountains of Afghanistan. Before advancing into what would become one of the worst firefights of the Afghan campaign, 23-year-old Sergeant Josh Harapko with the 10th Mountain Division hand-wrote this following letter to his mother. Dear Mom, I'm writing this letter before I leave, and I couldn't say what I wanted to over the phone. First, I want to say I love you so much. You're always there for me, even though I would never talk about my problems. Second, you gave me the options to be a man giving me slack in the rope to try to make the right decisions. And no matter what, you always believed in me, no matter how much of a pain I was to you. We are leaving for Bagram to flush out 600 Taliban soldiers from the mountains, and this is the single biggest battle of the war on terrorism. We already sustained 30 casualties and one killed in action. I don't want you to worry about me. I know that you will because I'm your son. Mom, I'm not afraid to die for something that is right. I just hope that I made you proud. And if I don't come home for any reason, I just want you to know that I'll always be with you. I want you to know that you raised the cream of the crop, Well, Mom, I do have to go now. All that I have said here are words from my heart. I mean every last one of them. Tell Aunt Joyce I said hi, and I love her. I hope to see you soon, but if that doesn't work out, I just needed you to know how I felt. I love and miss you. Take care. You're always in my thoughts. Your loving son, Josh. Josh ended up surviving that particular combat, but he died one year later when his Black Hawk helicopter crashed during a mission in Fort Drum, New York. And the common theme throughout all of these letters written by our soldiers is this deep longing that they have for their friends and their loved ones. Some of those letters offer instructions, other letters offer the reports of the journey, but every single letter was a deep expression of love. And this is the same type of letter that the Apostle Paul writes here to the church of Thessalonica. Take your Bibles with me and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we continue our study this morning. The past several weeks of our study involved examining the heart of the Apostle Paul to the people of Thessalonica as he focuses specifically on that church. Paul longed for them, longed to see them, longed to to, to care for their spiritual well-being, and he hated not being with this church In fact, we saw that his visit to this church plant or the establishment of this church plant was cut short due to the increase of the hostility that came his way. And the church of Thessalonica was planted by Paul along the help or alongside the help of Timothy and Silas during Paul's second missionary journey. It consisted mostly of Gentiles, a few converted Jews. But due to this increased hostility, Paul and the team felt that it was necessary for them to leave so they would not be imprisoned once again and further hinder the 
spread of the gospel. Paul tried on two different occasions to go back to the church. But both times, for whatever reason, Satan hindered him from being able to go. Instead, the Apostle Paul sends Timothy back to the church. Timothy then comes back to the Apostle Paul and brings a progress report of the church. And the Apostle Paul then, after hearing that, writes this letter to the church as a way mostly of encouragement as well as instruction. As we discovered so far, Paul was overall encouraged by the church in Thessalonica. Even though Paul's ministry was cut short, he was encouraged to hear that they continued to walk in the faith, but the church was not without affliction. As Paul expresses in chapter 2, the church was persecuted by the Jewish leaders, and Satan's attempt was to destroy the church, but in God's grace, the church thrived under persecution, and the church remained faithful, and Paul rejoiced. As we discovered last week with Pastor Bryce, we examined the longing heart that Paul had as he deeply desired to see the church in Thessalonica. We looked at the heart of ministry when it came to the Apostle Paul's desire to see those people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, Paul takes the time, as we discovered last week, to clear up any confusion that any of the Jewish persecutors would have spread in the fact that the Apostle Paul did not want to be with them. In fact, the Jewish persecutors, as Pastor Bryce mentioned, went back to the people and said, you see how the Apostle Paul isn't here? It's because he doesn't really care for you like he says he does. He's pretending to care for you, but the fact that he hasn't come back means he really doesn't. See, what the Jews are doing is they were trying to uh, pick apart the faith that the people had by tearing apart their very leader. And so the Apostle Paul writes in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you from a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with what? A great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but once again, Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For we, or for you are our glory and joy. You, church, are everything that we long for when it comes to the ministry here in Thessalonica. But as we transition to chapter 3, what Paul does is he reveals his concern for the faith of the people. So what we see in our text this morning is Paul's heart for the church. Paul begins by sharing his concern, then he continues by sharing an encouragement based upon his encouragement, based upon the report that Timothy brings to him, and then he closes out the chapter by expressing a prayer that he has for the church. And as I meditated on this passage this week, my heart was immediately connected with the heart of the Apostle Paul. And even though this entire letter is an expression of Paul's heart for the local church in Thessalonica, no other chapter expresses the true heart for the pastor, for the church that he is serving, than this chapter here. It's, as, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul takes all the concerns and the passions that a pastor has for his church, and he writes them in words that we can't express as pastors. And he gives those to us here in chapter 3. Much like the letters of the soldiers to their loved ones, chapter 3 contains a true expression of the pastor's love for the church. And what Paul does for us in chapter 3 is express the heart of all God-fearing pastors towards their church people. So the title of our message this morning is simply, The Pastor and the Church. The Pastor and the Church. Not too long ago, one of my pastor friends shared something on Facebook, an article entitled, 14 Surprising Facts About Pastors. The article does a wonderful job in expressing the struggles of a pastor on behalf of the pastor, 
Many of the facts ring true for most pastors, but there are three facts that I believe every single godly pastor can agree with. Number one, we fight a balance between pleasing God and pleasing man. And that is 100% true. We fight a balance between pleasing God and pleasing man. Because sometimes to please God, you have to disappoint man. And I, I hate disappointing anyone. Second fact, but just to be clear, I'm more afraid of disappointing God than I am disappointing man. I want to make that clear. Number two, spiritual warfare is a way of life. 100% true. But number three, our greatest joy is when our sheep get it. Our greatest joy is when our sheep get it. There's a supernatural love that God has for the people that God has called that pastor to serve. God has called the pastor to minister to a certain group of people, and part of that call is a love for the people. And what we see here in chapter 3 is Paul's heart for his people. Paul, being the former pastor of the church, expresses his love for the church in chapter 3, and that, again, can be applied to all pastors. And our first point this morning is this. There's the pastor's concern for the church. The pastor's concern for the church. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it would be good to be left in Athens alone. And that phrase there that Paul uses, and Pastor Bryce touched on this last week, whom we or when we could no longer endure it, is in reference to a deep longing that Paul had to see the people. The phrase describes the agony that Paul experienced due to his separation of the people in Thessalonica. It's like when we say to someone that we desperately miss, I miss them so much, I can hardly stand it. And you want to do anything that you possibly can to be reunited with those people. And the Apostle Paul says, when we could no longer endure it, we had to do something. The beginning of verse 1 is really a continuation from that statement that Paul makes at the end of chapter 2. He acknowledges that the removal of, or his removal from the people is due to the increasing hostility. And even though he wanted to see the people again, he acknowledges the fact that Satan hindered them from being able to do so. The desire became so strong to see the people that he had to do something about it. But rather than go himself because he was unable to do so, he goes and he sends Timothy while him and Silas remain in Athens. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, when we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul's number one concern for the people was not their physical health, their financial health. It was their spiritual health. He said, we wanted to know not about how you were feeling physically, but how you were doing spiritually. We wanted to know concerning your faith. Now, word faith here, highlights Paul's main and only concern for the church. In fact, he uses that word faith five different times throughout this one chapter. He says in verse 2, concerning your faith. Verse 5, sent to know your faith. Verse 6, brought us the good news of your faith. Verse 7, concerning you by your faith. Verse 10, lacking in your faith. Why was Paul so concerned about this? Because our faith is the foundation of everything. Your faith is the foundation of everything everything. The author of Hebrews makes this very clear in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words without faith in God and believing that God is the truly only sovereign creator and ruler of this world it is impossible to please God. Faith is the very foundation of Christianity. And so the apostle Paul was concerned regarding their faith. 
Paul wasn't the only one that was concerned for that. If you've ever had to take the time to read Jude, I encourage you to do so. You can get it done in about 10 minutes. It's very short. But Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, writes this short letter to the Jewish Christians that were infiltrated by heresy. Jude is the only New Testament book that is completely devoted to confronting apostasy. What is Jude's main argument for confronting that? It's strengthening their faith. Jude says in verse 3, there's only one chapter, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to what? Contend earnestly for the faith which is once delivered for all saints. And that one verse in and of itself is jam-packed with so many doctrinal truths. When Jude urges the people to contend earnestly for the faith, he is not referring to salvation because this book, this letter of Jude, was written to Christians. They were already people that received Christ. So what is it talking about? He's referencing the truths contained in God's word that was being attacked by the false prophets. The false teachers and the false prophets were offering a counterfeit gospel and confusing the Christians regarding what was genuinely true. And I really do believe that a person can be a genuine follower of Christ but yet be confused on many of the principles of God's word. They go to a church that doesn't preach the gospel, that doesn't preach the word of God as the word of God pertains within context, they can become confused. And the truth of God's word is attacked every single day. And, and Jude says, fight for it. To never waver from what God's word truly says is fighting. He's urging the Christians to wage war in all forms and to fight against it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul paints a picture of this as a soldier guarding a holy treasure. He says, fight the good fight of faith and lay on hold of eternal life. If you were to think about somebody, whether it's sports is your background or fighting just in general is your background, whenever you're in competition, the winner is always the one that fights harder, not necessarily the one that has more talent. It's always the one that fights harder. And so we get energized and we get enthused over sports. And I'm a huge sports guy. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles, not much to cheer about there, uh, fan. I'm a, a Tar Heels fan, basketball, all those things. I love them. And when we watch those sports, there's sometimes where I can't watch it because I become too enthralled with it, but I become passionate that they would just fight and win. What if we had that same kind of energy when it came to fighting for our faith? But yet we're so easy to say, you know what, that doesn't sound right. It's okay. I'll kind of let it slide. We'll just continue on. Or when thoughts trickle in through our kids or through the ear gates of somebody else that we care about and they bring it up and you're like, that doesn't sound right, but maybe they're just going through a phase and we never really address it. And, we, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying if you've ever done that, you're being bad. Like I've had that tendency to do that. And we tend to take the faith and set that on the back burner, but yet we become passionate for things that just don't matter for eternity. Paul says, fight for it because faith is our foundation every single day we go to war against the false pretenses of this world and satan is so good at taking the truth and diluting it just enough that even the strongest christians can become confused he can take issues i'm just going to say it he can take issues like abortion and make it seem like that if you are against it, then you really don't care about the mom. And I know that that's a whole other thing when you come into certain types of pregnancies. That's a whole other conversation. But he can take things that are very uh, clear in the word of God, and he can dilute that to make us as Christians say, you know what, maybe, maybe we need to be a little softer on this approach. Where he can allow things to come into our life 
that can confuse us from the truth of God's word. Our children right now are confused about their identity. This past Wednesday night, I was talking to a couple of our young students, and they were expressing to me that they are introduced by people that are their age group. I'm not talking about seniors in high school. I'm talking about middle school, some cases elementary school. Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I identify as fill-in-the-blank, and it may be the opposite of what they are. They don't come up with that on their own. They're being infiltrated every single day by false things. So why would we take a seat back and say, you know what? Uh, let's just, I don't want to make waves. They're doing it all day long. Why don't we stand up as Christians and say something? That's not right. It's not right. Our kids are being confused every day from what is truth. No wonder they're depressed and want to take their own life. I just talked with a person this past week who is a, uh, he, he, he works in clinical psychology and deals with all that, and one of his patients, and he said, listen, it, it, it is a step. They start off this way, and then they, then they start figuring out whether or not they're a boy or a girl, and then figuring out whether or not they're heterosexual or homosexual, and they keep taking all these steps until eventually that, cur- that kid, that teenager, took their own life. Because you're not going to find answers in any of that. You're only going to find it in here. So we fight for the truth. That's what Jude is talking about. That's what Paul says. Contend for your faith. Paul continues in verses 3 through 4. He says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know what he's doing now is he's saying, yes, fight for the faith. But I want you to understand this. The affliction that we suffered that Satan is now using to say, Paul doesn't care. Look, there's bad things that are happening in your life. Don't be surprised by that because we knew that was going to take place. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, the fact that we are going through the affliction right now is actually a fulfillment of what God said would happen. Say, well, what are you talking about? In Acts chapter 9, Right after the conversion of Saul, Paul, uh, God goes before Ananias and he says, I want you to go to Saul. We understand Saul was blinded at this point. I want you to go to Saul and I want you to minister to him. Ananias knows who Paul is. He was Saul at that time. All right, well, his name was just changed. He did not want to go to him. He was like the, 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 the all-defeating like, champion, all-time champion of killing Christians. Why would he want to go to that guy and put his life in danger? But Ananias trusts God. But in that conversation, as Ananias is fighting against God, God responds back to Ananias with this in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. He says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him what? How many things that he must suffer for my name's sake. The apostle Paul knew that he was going to suffer. And so when he goes back here in Thessalonians and he says that we were appointed to suffer, he's just saying, God already told us that this was going to happen, so don't be alarmed in the fact that it actually came to pass. Don't let Satan think that because you're going through a hard time that God doesn't care. Satan actually just fulfilling what God already said was going to happen. And so he continues on. And he says in, in, in verse 4, it's like, we were told that you were going to suffer tribulation. Don't let it surprise you. In verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could no longer adore it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Once again, reminding the people that his main concern for them was the strength of their faith, Paul says that he sent Timothy to make sure that that tempter, being Satan, had not destroyed the faith of the people. And that is one of the main reasons why we gather together as a church collectively on a weekly basis. Because we go throughout 
the life all week and we're fighting against and we're contending for our faith and we're worn out, we gather together as a church so that we can be encouraged and we can be strengthened in the faith so that the tempter does not overcome or overtake us. Okay? I understand there's certain situations where people can't go out of the home. I got it. I watched it online. I'm not talking about that. But I want you to think about the people that have checked out on church. Are they closer with God spiritually than when they were when they were in church? No. It never works out that way. We go to church to grow and encourage each other in the faith. And this is the concern that Paul has. He says, I don't care about anything else. And I share the same concern. I don't care about, uh, I shouldn't say that. The most thing, that, the biggest thing I care about is your faith. Is your faith. That your faith would not be overthrown by the, by the temptations of this world, by the false gospel that's being preached. I don't want you to come to church for my sake. Well, for Pastor Bryce's sake, I want you to come to church to grow in the faith so that no matter where we go or what happens to the chapel in the future, our faith is still strengthened because it's grounded in the Word of God. And just like the Apostle Paul, I pray, Pastor Bryce and I gather together every single week, and we pray that your faith would grow in Christ. So there's this concern, but secondly, we see the pastor's encouragement from the church. Verses 6 and 7, he says, But now that Timothy has come from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. This news from Timothy encouraged the, the heart of the Apostle Paul in two different ways. First off, the news convinced Paul that Satan's plan to disrupt God's work had not been successful. Why? Because they grew in faith and love. Satan said, if I could take away the leader, then this church is going to crumble. The apostle Paul says, praise God, Satan's uh, attempts to attack it. He was being a human being as well. He was concerned for the church. But the fact that he heard that they were growing in their faith and love, he understood, you know what? Satan didn't win on this. God came through victoriously. This church does not need me. They just need God. Faith and love being the two building blocks to genuine salvation, while faith is the foundation, love is the evidence of that. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, the Bible says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Say, I have faith, but if you have no desire or love for other people, then I would challenge you to really examine where your heart lies. So that was one of the first ways that he was encouraged. Secondly, the, the report from Timothy encouraged Paul based upon the fact that the church wanted to see Paul. He felt loved by his own people. They desired to see him. Paul rejoices in the fact that the people greatly desired to see their pastor just as the pastor greatly desired to see the people. And my heart breaks over churches that don't love their pastor. And my heart rejoices over churches like the chapel that love their pastor. And again, I want to remind us, the pastors are not perfect. Matter of fact, I'm not trying to take away any kind of um, spiritual attack from you because Satan attacks you as a Christian just as much as others, but I would say that oftentimes those attacks are harder and come on heavier to a pastor because the pastor leading that church. So the last thing that a pastor needs, and I praise the Lord that doesn't happen here, is for people to go home for lunch and have roast preacher after the sermon. What we need is for you to go home and pray for us. 
If you see something that you're struggling with and it doesn't sit quite right to the pastor, you know what you do? Go and talk to the pastor. I've had several of you come and talk to me and um, it doesn't feel good <laughs> to talk. Like, it doesn't feel good to me. It's like, oh man, I feel great. They just, you know. But it does help me as a pastor. I know I don't see everything. I'm a human being. I'm 34 years old. There's several of you here. They're a whole lot older than that. We need wisdom from you. You pray for the pastor. But I rejoice in the fact that the church, like the chapel, I know you love our family. I know that. It is evident to us. It is evident how you treat our kids. It is evident how you treat our family. I know you love us. I know you love Pastor Bryce and even Janie. I know you love both of them. I can say that. She's my sister. But I praise the Lord in that. The Apostle Paul rejoices in the fact that that the church loved him. He's encouraged by that. As he continues on, he says in verse 8, he says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. In other words, the apostle Paul says that he truly lives knowing that the, Thessal that the Thessalonians are remaining steadfast in the Lord. The word stand fast pictures an army that refuses to retreat even though it's been assaulted by the enemy. This past week, uh, I was on a long trip and I had bought a couple of audio books because I don't like to read, I had to listen to them. And so I was listening to one called Lies and Legends About the Civil War. It's part of the Killing series by uh, Bill O'Reilly. He's a lot of history books and I love history. Well, I didn't know this, but uh, one of the most coveted positions within the military, Union and Confederates, was the flag holder. Matter of fact, the people being unarmed would fight over those positions and it was sure enough a death sentence. Matter of fact, one uh, particular group went through 14 different flag holders because as they would charge the line, they were the first ones to be shot at. But they stood their ground. And oftentimes, as soon as that person would fall, the whole thing with the army was that they would grab that flag before it ever touched the ground because that flag was the one thing that they rallied around and they stood fast on holding that flag. It's the image here. We stand fast in the Lord, willing to die for what the Lord says. The Apostle Paul says, you've done that, and I rejoice. Paul expresses his joy in verses 9 through 10. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. What was the basis of Paul's joy? Knowing that the people remained in the faith. As Paul rejoices in their spiritual growth, he also recognizes they have gone through some growing or they still have more growing to do. In verse 10, Paul says that he prays night and day that he would see their face so that he could help them reach their full potential. That's what he means by that phrase there, perfect what is lacking in your faith. Not saying that they don't have faith, but help them grow in their faith. What we see so far is the pastor's concern for the church, which should never change accompanied by the pastor's encouragement based upon the concern being dressed. And Paul was concerned for their faith and he rejoiced in the growth of their faith. And I, as the pastor, empathize with the Apostle Paul. I am grateful or gratefully concerned for the, for the faith of our church that would be grounded on the truths of God's word. And I rejoice in the decisions that are made for Christ. And we, as a church, should never grow complacent when it comes to our Christian growth. I've heard people say in conversations that they have arrived spiritually and because they have done so, they no longer go to church because they've arrived spiritually. Can I tell you something right now? If that's what people say, that actually demonstrates a lack of spiritual growth. It actually demonstrates immaturity. 
Because you never arrive spiritual on this side of eternity, and you don't go to church solely for you. You go to church so you can help somebody else that has not arrived spiritually grow to be more like Christ. And so we get involved, and we serve, and we love God. But Paul isn't finished. In verses 11 through 13, he closes out this chapter by expressing a prayer for the church. He rejoices in their growth. He knows the attacks of Satan will come, and they'll come strong. But thirdly, we're going to look at the pastor's prayer for the church. Beginning in verse 10, Paul redirects his attention from the people to God. In verses 10 through 13, we see three petitions that Paul makes before God, and we'll go through these quickly, and then we'll be done. First off, number one, Paul prays for a return visit to Thessalonica. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Notice that word direct. The Apostle Paul is following the pattern in which the scriptures command us to do when it comes to the will of God. All right, Psalms and Proverbs also command us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, lean on unto their own understandings, and all they ways acknowledge him, and he shall what? Direct your paths. The Apostle Paul is like, he's praying that God, through, through God's will, would direct his way back to the church. He's trusting that the Lord will direct him back to the people. But the second thing that Paul prays for is that the church would increase in love. Paul continues in his prayer in verse 12, And may the Lord God make you increase and abound in love one to another and to all just as we do. Paul understood that if the church was going to grow, they had to grow in their love for each other. They must unify in love. That is what's going to keep them strong. There was a story several years ago of this island located right off of the, uh, the South Sea there. It's a secluded island, bone white beaches that stretched over the shoreline. And nobody knew how this gentleman got to the island, but somehow he did. And he was the only one there. One particular day, a group of scientists were fishing and they were doing some marine work and they saw the island, so they figured they would go over there and park their boat and have some lunch on the island. And so they started eating and they had this weird, sick feeling that somebody was watching them. And so they looked through the woods and they saw this man, this, this kind of homeless-looking figure with a long beard peering at them. And after a short period of time of them realizing that neither parties meant Ill, any ill will towards each other, they befriended this man. This man began to take them around the island and show them all the things that he had made. He made a nine-hole golf course. It was a small island, so he couldn't make 18. So he made a nine-hole golf course. He constructed a little restaurant for himself, and he made this little building, and he was proud to show it off. And he takes them over to a church. And the church was a beautiful structure. It was uh, very ornate in all this construction. And he said, this is where I worship. Well, the group knew that he was the only one on the island and they became confused when they looked down the road and they saw another church and they said well what's this church for and the man said you know what i was going there for a little while but then i felt uh, it wasn't the right place for me so i came over here and started another church all right when it's that bad it's bad paul says i pray that your church or the thessalonica is unified together in love but what does he say not only for you but for what all all. A church's goal and design is not to be inward focused only. It is first to be upward focused. And when as we are upward focused, naturally we will become outward focused. 
I know it is extremely uncomfortable to go up to people, it can be, and talk to them about your faith. But I've made it a habit recently that everybody I come in contact with, if I don't have a track to give to them, I at least want to say, can I pray for you and somehow direct that conversation regarding God. I say, well, Pastor Brandon, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do that. Okay? Or you're a pastor. You're much more spiritual. No, no, no. I struggled with that for a long time. But you know what got me over that? You know what got me over that fear? was sitting outside one night um, this past week in a tent in the middle of the woods, hiking on the Appalachian Trail with Michael, hearing nothing around me absolutely nothing, completely dead silent, and it was completely black. Realizing that the worst part about hell is not the eternal burning and the punishment that we'll receive, but it's eternally being separated from God. And I don't want that or wish that upon anyone. And so I don't, we have to get over the point where we don't care what people think about us when it comes to our faith. But we have this sense of urgency that I'm going to love you enough to at least give this to you and help you realize that without Jesus, your life means nothing and you will spend forever in eternity suffering. And I don't want that for you. And so it's nothing for us to hand them a track. There has to be that sense of urgency. And the Apostle Paul says, I pray that your love will grow, but your love for each other will grow. So as we close this morning... I share this same sentiment as a church. Actually, before we get there, there's one more thing, and we'll write this quickly because it's actually an introduction for chapter 4, number 3. Paul prays that the church will be strengthened in holiness. He says in verse 13, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, blameless in holiness, means no grounds of accusation because of unholiness. We'll talk about that more next week as we get into chapters 4 and 5 because he really focuses on that uh, command there about holiness and what it means to become holy. But as we close this morning, I pray that these words of the Apostle Paul is an encouragement, but I, I, hope, it, I hope it helps you understand just a tad bit about my heart for all of you and for our community here in Chapel Hill. I've, I said before, if I could, I wish I could, but obviously I had to feed my family. I, don't, I would do this job for free if I could. Because I know that this is what God has called me to do and called us to do, and also because I love you. But as we continue to seek God, I do beg that you would, you would pray for us. You would continue to pray for Pastor Bryce, pray for our families and that you would pray for each other as we continue to grow in this love and this sense of urgency that people need the Lord.